You all should have told me we were going to have church. <laughs> Thank you so much to Dr. Moscala for the privilege of being here and joining you here in this seminary building and this seminary family throughout the next three days of this week. The first class that I remember in seminary took place in this chapel. There were about 170 of us, and Dr. Raoul Deteran taught the class. It was a class entitled The Doctrine of Revelation and Inspiration. I can still remember the, I don't think terror is too strong of a word, that I felt when he explained how the class would work. He talked about, briefly talked about the textbook. He said, we'll have an exam over the textbook in three weeks. And that was it. <laughs> it's like, okay, so I guess we need to learn the textbook. And then he said, at the end of the quarter, we will have an exam that consists of one question, just one. I'll give you a blue exam booklet. You can write for two hours, and that will be the exam. Most of your grade rides on that exam. Now he said, I'm going to give some options because I will write 20 questions on three by five cards. And when the exam day comes, I will shuffle those and draw two, read them, and you choose one. So don't assume because I covered a topic in three days as opposed to another topic in one day that I'll ask the question of three days because it could be anything. I was terrified, thinking everything rides on one question, one question. So in honor of Dr. Dedrin, I have one question for you today, just one. And it is this question, what brings you the greatest joy in ministry? What brings you the greatest joy in ministry? Now, I recognize that there can be a variety of answers to that question. There might be someone who says, you know what brings me joy? What brings me joy is when somebody calls me pastor. Pastor, what should we do today? Pastor, what's your sermon on today? Pastor, what do you think about? You say, that brings me joy. Well, I can understand that. But I would also say to you, if that brings you the greatest joy, you're in for a long, hot summer. Because the word pastor doesn't mean what it once meant. It doesn't bring the respect that it once brought. When I was a student here at seminary and break would come, I would go home to Texas desperate to earn some money. And so what I did was work for a friend of mine who sold cabinets. In those days, there were large apartment complexes going in all over Dallas. He would sell the cabinets to them, and then on the right day, two or three semi-trucks would roll up and would unload the cabinets that needed to be carried to every apartment in the entire complex. That was the work I did, back-breaking work hauling cabinets, but it paid good money. 
Now, the truck drivers would help us unload the cabins. And one day, the truck driver unloading was full of stories about women with words that didn't appear in the Sabbath school quarterly. (laughs) And he just was flowing these stories. Just before noon, I noticed he stopped. I don't mean he stopped telling the stories. I mean, he stopped talking. He just went dead silent. Reading lunch, and I commented on that. I said, boy, that guy sure quietened up. My friend left. Ha, ha, ha. He said, I told him you were a pastor. <laughs> Didn't say a word the rest of the day. <laughs> kind of reminds me of the story that Chuck Swindoll, the writer and preacher, tells. He says, I could fill a book with amazing stories of stuff people have done and said shortly after they learned I was a pastor. One fellow sitting next to me on a plane during the noontime meal nervously changed his request from a Bloody Mary to a ginger ale, (laughs) whispering to me in a sweat that he really meant to order that in the first place. I told him not to worry. I didn't mind what it was that he drank, which he thought was a hint, so he ordered me a Bloody Mary in a panic. (laughs) When I declined, he decided to change seats. In a hurry, he spilled his meal all over me. Sometimes it's just easier to tell folk I'm an author. But then they want to know what kind of books I write, and that leads to another Bloody Mary ginger ale episode. (laughs) I will never forget the time. I was walking down a long corridor preparing to make a hospital call. As I approached the wing, her husband was just leaving, coming out the door. On his way out, he lit up a cigarette and then glanced out and suddenly recognized me from a distance. I smiled and waved. He nervously waved back and was absolutely at a loss to know what to do with the cigarette. (laughs) Holding that lighted cigarette, he slid his hand into his pants pocket. (laughs) I decided to act as though I hadn't seen it and engaged him in a lengthy conversation. (laughs) It became hilarious. The more we talked, the shorter the cigarette got in his hand, the more he looked like a chimney. There was smoke swirling out of his pants, up around his collar. Unable to restrain myself any longer, I asked him, why don't you just go ahead and finish the cigarette? Would you believe it? He denied having a cigarette. (laughs) Within seconds, he dashed out and fled, which is probably good. Had we talked much longer, the poor man would have been a living sacrifice. So if you say, my greatest pleasure is being called pastor, it could get difficult. One question. What brings you the greatest joy in ministry? Somebody might say, position. In Seventh-day Adventist ministry, so they say, we all make the same. Therefore, we all are not supposed to be concerned about size, location. It's all the same out there. Well, if that's true, because of that, size does begin to matter. If we all make the same, then the currency for many becomes position. Bigger church, conference. Union, etc. Position. 
And then I think of the pastor who said this. Every time a friend of mine succeeds, something in me dies. So if your greatest joy is position, you're in danger. What is your greatest joy in ministry? Maybe you would say, the greatest joy I have in ministry is success of ministries. Seeing church members empowered, equipped to be able to go out and do the ministry of the gospel. Watching them work in ways that affects, indeed changes, other people's lives. That's what brings me the greatest joy. Seeing other people active, the Holy Spirit working through them. Well, we're getting better anyway. That's a wonderful reality, a deeply fulfilling reality in ministry to see others doing the ministry to which God calls them. But I suggest there's more. What brings you the greatest joy? Maybe it's a full church packed to the gills. When you run into a colleague in ministry, how's it going? Great, how about for you? Oh, it's good, man, we're packing them in. Yeah, we couldn't fit them in with a shoehorn. Yeah, it's growing. It's out of control, the growth that's happening. That brings me the greatest joy. What brings you the greatest joy? I want to take you to a passage in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 10. The context of this passage is that Jesus has sent out the 72 on their mission, on their preaching ministry. They have gone out, they have covered the land. They have gone into hamlets and villages and larger towns. They've been preaching the word of the gospel which Jesus sent them to preach. They've been empowered by His Spirit to do the work of ministry. Great things have been happening. And now they return. Now it's pastor's meeting. Now it's worker's meeting time. Now it's time to give a report of exactly what has been going on in their ministry. Luke 10, beginning in verse 17, says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to your name, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And so they come back and they gather. And Jesus bends his eternal gaze upon them and says, so how did it go? So what happened? When you were out preaching the word, what took place? And they begin to tell the stories. Jesus, you have no idea. We saw people's lives change. We saw destinies transformed. We saw people who were possessed of evil spirits set free, blind eyes see. We saw people who couldn't walk jump and shout for joy because of your name. What happened was absolutely stunning. And Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. 
Now, there's been some question as to exactly what Jesus meant. One preacher says that what he meant with those words is, big deal. Satan's already a defeated foe. I saw it long ago. He's done, finished. He may be saying that. Or he may be saying something else. He may be saying, in your ministry, in what you did out there, in the lives you transformed, in the people you touched, in the destinies that were changed through your ministry, I saw the enemy fall. Because the power that has been bestowed upon you, everything has changed. The enemy has been defeated in the work you've done. Spiritual power has come through you and changed the world that you encountered. Now, if that's not reason for rejoicing, I don't know what is. If there's not reason for rejoicing in being able to say lives are transformed, through the ministry we do here. I think of what happened at our church just this past August during our camp meeting series. Our media team put together five stories to be told one each week throughout the five weekends of August on the screen, stories of people in our community. I think of the first story that appeared, Robin. Robin, whose life had been profoundly damaged by the way she was brought up, by the difficulties she encountered by the choices that she'd made. Just a bit outside of Loma Linda, there's a large interstate interchange. The 215 and the 10 freeways meet hundreds of thousands of cars back and forth every day. Robin, in the video, told the story of how she lived under that interchange for a year. Lived there trying to survive. And then somehow, somewhere, the grace of God through a person drew her into our outreach ministry. Got her a job in our jobs program. Helped her get off of things that had bound her and enslaved her. And slowly but surely, the grace of God pulled her out of the slimy pit in which she was stuck. She has a job today, a job at Loma Linda University Health. She sat right over here on this side of the church. I went over there, and I hugged her, and I said, Robin, I, I don't even have words. There aren't words to describe the joy that I feel. She said, I can't tell you how hard it is to watch that, to watch that and to remember that from which I came. I can't describe how difficult, but I also can't describe the joy now of being here of being in a community, of walking with Jesus. That's what happened at that workers' meeting. The disciples were coming and were saying, Jesus, this is what is happening in your name. The power that you have bestowed upon us is transforming people like Robin. And that brings us incredible joy. Now you would think that would be the end of the exchange. That Jesus would say, in your ministry, in your work, the enemy is being defeated. But he doesn't stop there. There's a word in verse 20. The first word in English in verse 20. The NIV from which I read 
renders it, however. Some versions render it, nevertheless. Some say, but. You know that little word. That little word, but, changes everything. You get your paper back from Dr. Moscala's class. You are excited and you're scared. Because you know that on this paper rides a great deal of your grade. You look down and you see his writing. He says, you wrote a good paper. You dealt with some of the key issues. I found some insights here, but. (laughs) Suddenly all bets are off. Everything that went before, suddenly now you hold tentatively. But. The conference presidents come to visit. You're an unsponsored student. You make sure they have their resumes in their hand, your resumes in their hands. You finally have the opportunity to sit down with one of them eye to eye. And that conference president says to you, as I looked over your resume, it looks really good. You've done well in your classes. You you, you did well in college. You have a bright future ahead of you. It's very exciting. But, ah, everything that just went before you now hold very tentatively. But, she looks at you. In the dim and dancing shadows. And she says to you, you're a great guy. You are going to make some woman a very good wife. Husband. Husband. I know that you have many gifts to offer. But. You may make somebody a very good husband, but it ain't going to be me. Everything before that word, but, you suddenly hold more tentatively. Jesus says, in your ministry, Satan has been defeated. He's falling like lightning from heaven because of what's happening in your work. But, however, nevertheless, now we pay attention because of what he says next. Do you remember it? Verse 20 again. However, Do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What brings you the greatest joy in ministry? Listen to the words of the the great Oswald Chambers writing in his book, My Utmost for His Highest, writing about this very passage. Here's what Chambers penned. Jesus Christ says, in effect, don't rejoice in successful service, but rejoice because you are rightly related to me. The snare in Christian work is to rejoice in successful service, to rejoice in the fact that God has used you. Think about that. 
You can never measure what God will do through you if you are rightly related to Jesus Christ. Keep your relationship right with Him, then whatever circumstances you're in, and whoever you meet day by day, He is pouring rivers of living water through you. Listen to these next words. And it is of His mercy that He does not let you know it. Consider that. He's pouring rivers of living water through you. He's changing lives through you. The devil is being conquered because of you. And it is of his mercy that he does not let you know it. When once you are rightly related to God by salvation and sanctification, remember that wherever you are, you are put there by God. And by the reaction of your life on the circumstances around you, you will fulfill God's purpose as long as you keep in the light as God is in the light. What were Chambers' words? Don't rejoice in successful service, but rejoice because you are rightly related to me. Sobering words for preachers who are learning to preach, for preachers who long to hear the affirmation of the congregation, for those of us who yearn to hear, good job, pastor, well done, best sermon I ever heard. Sobering words, these. Sobering words, don't rejoice in successful service, but rejoice because you're rightly related to me. So the question is, what does that mean in our day-to-day life? Our day-to-day life of pastoral ministry. I want to suggest three things for your consideration. Three things that... Relating to Jesus, living in Him, walking in Him, has to do with in our lives as pastors, in your life as a pastor. First of all, it has to do with your grip, with your grip. Now, I understand, I know, we are each in the grip of the grace of God. Jesus says, I have you in the palm of my hand, and nothing can take you out. We are able to have an assurance in our standing with God because the grip of His grace. I understand that. That's not what I'm speaking of here. I'm talking about your grip on Him. What happens in your grip? My uncle and my father, Both died from Parkinson's, deadly, diabolical disease. As my uncle was beginning to decline, he was doing everything he could to keep his mind active, to keep thinking. He was doing everything he could to keep his grip strong. He he had those, I don't even know what they're called. You know those things that you try to use to exercise your grip? He was doing those constantly. He would memorize lists, list of capitals, list of states, list of presidents, all kinds of things, trying to stay alert and active and strong. Suddenly ended up in the hospital one day. They thought something had seriously gone wrong. Doctor came in to see him. Said, Mr. Roberts, he looked up at him, took his hand, said, squeeze my hand. And he gripped him till the doctor yelled out and said, I think your grip's fine. (laughs) And then he said, Mr. Roberts, who's the president? He said, it's Bill Clinton. Now let me ask you a question. Who was the fifth president? (laughs) He was working on things, his grip on life. So let me ask you. How is your grip on the things of God? 
It's so easy for it to be simply a job, simply the next sermon, simply this class, simply this grade, simply my progress up the ladder. It's so easy for it to be that. How is your grip on the things of God? Article in Leadership Journal years ago caught me, gripped me. The preacher who wrote the article said, there are two things on which I want to be utterly clear before I stand up to preach. First of all, I want to make certain I have a strong grip on the text. I want to make certain that I have spent enough hours with that text, that I know what it's saying, that I'm not standing up here wondering what it's saying that I don't have an encounter at the door with a member who shakes my hand and says, yes, pastor, but what about? And then look at the text and realize that just undoes everything I just said, and I didn't even see it because I didn't spend enough time with the text. So I have made a commitment, he said, I will not stand up and preach until I have a grip on that text. But secondly, he said, I have made a commitment not to stand up and preach until that text has a grip on me. Until it has gripped my life, until it has done its work in my life, until I have prayed and said, God, as I work on the text, please work on me. Let me face and encounter all that this mirror of a text holds up to me and do that work in my own life before I stand up and suggest that it needs to do work in their lives. So let me ask you a question. How's your grip? Your grip on the Word of God has the text on which you will preach next class period in preaching, next Sabbath in a sermon, next Friday night at Vespers. Do you have a grip on that text? And does that text have a grip on you? That has to do with your relationship with God. So if you're wrestling with the question, what brings me the greatest joy in ministry? Maybe one question you ought to have underneath that is, how's my grip? Second question, how's your growth? How is your growth? You're in a period of time in your lives right now in seminary when you are forced to read. You are forced to delve into the books. You are forced to learn new things, to understand new things, to respond to new things. You're in a period of time when you are growing, but let me ask you more deeply. What are you doing in that period of time for your own spiritual journey? Aside from any class, aside from any requirement, aside from any assignment, paper, or test, what's happening in your walk with Jesus? How's your growth? So let me make it even more specific than that. Let me ask you a question that had I been asked the question when I sat here as a student, I could not have answered in the affirmative. So I ask the question not out of judgment. I have no desire to got you with this question. What I do desire is that you will do some self-examination. So let me ask you this question. Have you read this book? Have you read this book? Have you sat down and opened it and read, In the Beginning, God? And then over a journey of weeks or months, 
through the narrative of God's people, finally come to the place where you read, even so come, Lord Jesus. Have you read this book? I'm not asking, have you read about this book? You've read a great deal about this book. You will read much more about this book. I'm not asking, have you studied it for a sermon next week? You'll do a great deal of that. I'm asking, have you read it? Just read it. Is it just me? Or is it the supreme irony that young people like I was in seminary and a lot of older people as well, we have staked our lives on this book and have never even read it. And so I was listening one day. This will date me. I was listening to a cassette. A lot of you don't even know what I just said. I was going out jogging. I thought, okay, I've got to have something to listen to today. I was always listening to things, and so I, I rummaged through a drawer of a whole bunch of old cassettes, and I found one that somebody had given to me on the day of my ordination. It was a cassette which had the same gentleman on both sides, his name, H.M.S. Richards. On one side, he preached a sermon on the water of life, powerful sermon. But on the other side, he was interviewed, and they had given the title to the interview. Dwight, you may remember this had given the title to the interview, If I Were a Young Minister Again. You remember that? And so I'm jogging down Mission Road in Loma Linda, California, listening to HMS Richards interviewed, If I Were a Young Minister Again. And that's the principal question the interviewer asked. If you were a young minister again, what would you do? And my mind did a quick, I wonder what he'll say. I had seen HMS Richards as a teenager in Guatemala City. He had come to visit. He was seated, seated up on the platform as the preliminary parts of the worship service were going on. He didn't understand it. He was an elderly man by then, a bit hunched over. He had a shawl over his shoulders. And he had his Bible open because of poor eyesight. When he read, he always held his Bible very close. And I sat there way back, teenager in the congregation, watching this man just reading his Bible. Just reading his Bible. I'd been told that he would read his Bible while walking to work. Read his Bible. I'd been told that if you gave him a text, he could tell you what came before it and what came after it. I don't know if that's true, but I'd been told that. I can tell you this. My father, who translated for him that day, would later say that as HMS preached, he was quoting one text after another and turning back and forth in his Bible to read. And Dad said he wasn't reading the text. He knew them by memory. How did you know, Dad? His Bible was upside down. And he was turning here and there, reading the text. And so when they asked him, what would you do if you were a young minister again? I almost stumbled and fell. Because he said, if I were a young minister again, I would read the Bible more. And I said, what? This man... Read it more? And he told about narrating the Bible in 90 hours so people could listen to it. And I thought, as I ran down Mission Road, I thought, my mission is going to be read that book. I'm going to read that book. If he can, if he can narrate it in 90 hours out loud, 
I certainly ought to be able to read it in 60. The next morning I read for an hour, and the next day for an hour. About 60 days later, I had finished. It has become my discipline every single year. I read it this morning. It's hard for me to put into words what that comes to mean, that journey through Scripture year in and year out for no other reason than for my soul. So my question, how's your growth? Have you read this book? What brings you the greatest joy in life? How's your grip? How's your growth? And finally, How's His grace in your life? His grace in your life. I'll tell you the story. I've shared it back home and with some others, but not all with you. If you were there, I'm sorry. But I'll tell you the story. When that came home to me more powerfully than many other occasions, it was on the day of my ordination. It was a a very meaningful day in my life, but if I were to be honest with you, I would tell you I was feeling very overwhelmed, very unworthy for this call. It was an afternoon service at the campground and the conference where I worked. My soon-to-be wife and I were making our way up to the auditorium where the ordination would take place. As we walked up, we encountered a minister who had been in ministry for many years. And he looked at me, recognized, aren't you being ordained this afternoon? I said, yeah, yes I am. He said, well, I have some advice for you. It's been very helpful to me in my ministry. Well, I was open to anything at that point. And he said to me, this has really helped me because it's kept me from getting into difficulty with my members. I have learned that if you take a paper clip and you take the back part of your tie and you clip it to your tie, you can then clip your tie to your shirt. And then you can run the back part of your tie through that loop and it will keep it anchored to your shirt. And then nobody will criticize you for wearing a tie clasp. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. But I said something like, okay, or thank you, or I don't remember what I said, but it stunned me. And we kept walking, walking up to where I was going to be ordained. And another pastor stopped me, had also been in ministry for many years, looked at me, and he said, aren't you being ordained today? I said, yes. He said, let me share something with you. It's been a lot to me in my ministry. How are you feeling about it? I said, not as good as I was a minute ago. I didn't say that. (laughs) I said, well, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, to be honest. And he said to me, just remember this. You should always feel overwhelmed. Because you will never deserve it. No matter what you do, no matter how long you work, no matter how great you preach, no matter how many you baptize, You will never deserve it. You have been called for one reason only, and that is to be covered with the righteousness of Jesus and to share what He's done in your life. 
I don't have his permission to share his name, but his initials were Morris Vinden. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that at one of those moments when I thought, I am not worthy for this calling. That somebody said to me, you're right. You're not. But he is. And because of him, he will grip you with his grace. He will be with you every day. He will give his spirit power to what you do. And when you're done, you'll say it's all him. Wasn't about me, but about him. So I just have one question today, that's all. Just one question. Everything rides on it, but it's just one question. What brings you the greatest joy in ministry? Do you know, I think what Jesus would have said if his disciples had asked him that, Lord, what brings you the greatest joy in ministry? You know what I think he would have said? I think he would have said, you. You. So the only right answer when he asks us, what brings you the greatest joy in ministry? You. Gracious God, don't ever let us forget that. Amen.